0: Tonight we're going to talk about Babylon. Babylon. It's a big subject in Scripture. It's a pretty big subject in the book of Revelation. It has quite a bit of real estate. You've got two chapters full of letters to his churches, and you've got two chapters that deal with the judgment on Babylon. Now, that should say something to us. You have two whole chapters dedicated to this. And these are chapters 17 and 18. And so what I want to do, it's important enough that we'll kind of slow down a little bit and just kind of give some background and try to get an understanding to who or what Babylon is. But it's important enough that we pay attention and we get what's being said. Um, why the judgment on Babylon is so important. As we'll look into chapter 17, chapter 18, you're going to see Babylon described a couple of different ways. In one way, she is depicted as a woman, and in another chapter, chapter 18, she is depicted as a city. Um, there's a reason she's symbolized in these two ways. And so let's let's kind of get a feel for what we're going to be looking at, at how John is shown who Babylon is, and then we're going to start going through some other places in Scripture to kind of get an idea before we come back here. So if you're in Revelation, look at chapter 17. And just look at verse 1. We're going to kind of skip around, look at a couple verses here, get a feeling for what's going on, and and, uh, then we'll go from there. Revelation 17 and verse 1. It says, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth on many waters. Whoa, that's a pretty strong language. Right from the get-go, you're given a taste, you're given a, a, a feeling of, of what's going on here. It's not a vision of the bride, right? It's not a vision of the woman that's clothed with the sun you already know you're going to be looking at something filthy, something disgusting, something abominable in the sight of God. Verse 2, With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he gets carried away, and he sees this woman, verse 4, arrayed in purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. Again, I, I think I mentioned this when we were here some weeks ago. It sounds pretty, right? But in the reality, if you think of it, it's rather disgusting. When it's compared to another woman in Scripture, one who is clothed in fine linen, clean and white. You could take this woman here and contrast her with the bride of Christ and you see a a very marked difference. Verse 5, And upon her forehead was a name written... Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. So we see this woman as portrayed as a prostitute. We get her her name. Her name is Babylon, the mother of all abominations, right? Or the mother of harlots and abominations, And we see that she's drunken with the blood of the saints. She has a golden cup in her hand that we should assume is full of the blood of the saints. And again, you see, now we're given this description in contrast to the bride of Christ, and it's already showing us this is something disgusting. I'll just say it now, and then we'll come back and um, explain it later. The depiction of the woman and the description of the woman and naming her Babylon is to show the religious side of things, the religious abomination, the religious uh, fornication, the religious disgustingness that's going on. If you go over to chapter 18, we get a different picture. Actually... Chapter 17 and verse 18 says, And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. So now we get a different picture. Not only is she just a woman, now she's also described as a city which reigns over the kings of the earth. This city that has power over kings. We get told now of destruction there. In chapter 18 and verse 2, Babylon the Great is fallen, has fallen, has become the habitation of devils and the whole. Of every foul spirit in the cage of unclean and hateful birds. So this city is facing destruction. Verse 12, let's go down to verse 12. It tells of some of the merchandise of the city. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all thine wood and the manner vessels of ivory and all manner vessels of most precious wood of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots. All this merchandise that's coming out of there. I want you to notice the last two things in Verse 13, what does it say? And slaves, some of yours might say bodies, right? And what's the last one? Souls of men. You see now, so it's taking it up a notch. It's not just describing a literal place, like a literal city. It's become symbolic now of society. Society that is so self-rich with all that it can make and it makes it off of not just um, commodities, but bodies and the souls of man. So this is talking something deeper, and I just want to set those seeds in your minds. It's not talking, it's talking about something deeper than just simply a location. Like this, this city's getting destroyed at the end of all things. No, 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 this is bigger. We get this type of a woman, a picture of a woman who symbolizes religious adultery. And then also city, which uh, she's depicted as a city, which is a center of trade and of culture, which talks about humanity and society as a whole. So I want to set that out there. Now I want to kind of take some time to explain. So what's up with Babylon. When you hear Babylon, what do you think of? What comes to your mind? Huh? Tower of Babel. Some would say Rome, right? Or uh, the book I've been preaching on—it's <laughs> going to on? Daniel, the book of Daniel. My goodness, King Nebuchadnezzar, all that, right? Sometimes that comes to mind. Probably things we've heard of in the Bible. So, is like. Is this the judgment on King Nebuchadnezzar finally and his kingdom? Is it the judgment on Rome, which was the Babylon of the day, which which John would have been writing of? Or is it judgment on the Tower of Babel? I want to tell you right from the start, it's all of those. It's all of those and what those represent, what those contain. And to get an idea, we need to go back even farther. Babylon starts at the beginning of the book. Genesis chapter 4. The Bible has themes that run through it. Uh, Most themes in the Bible, actually, if you pay attention, can be found in the book of Genesis or the book of Exodus, and they repeat themselves through the rest of the Bible. Think of uh, Egypt, the ten plagues, and and the uh, the Exodus from Egypt, and the Passover, and all that goes along with that. Isn't that a picture of Christ to come? like a theme that's replayed throughout, ultimately fulfilled in Christ, who is the Passover, who is the one who brings us out. And the Red Sea is a picture of baptism as we journey with the church through the wilderness of the earth, finally on the way to the promised land, right? You see all those types? Well, it's a theme that's set out in Exodus and replayed over and over. The same is with Babylon. The the themes, the foundations of this empire, this... System called Babylon is laid early in the Bible and we see it played out over and over and there is a final judgment coming at the end of all things. So I want to take some time and kind of put some things down there that will help you to understand how big this is. Revelation 17, Revelation 18 should be chapters that bring us joy because finally God's going to judge him. God will have His judgment over Babylon, finally. Now we need to see why that is so important. So Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel, right? At least that's what the title in your Bible says. (laughs) If you begin to read, you'll, you'll see this is the account of Cain and Abel. So let's see some seeds here that are started. Chapter four and verse one. Adam knew Eve his wife, and conceived and bare Cain. He said, "I have gotten a man from the earth, from the Lord." And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. That's some pretty important information contained there. He respects Abel's. He says no to Cain's. Abel brings the first of his flock, which is going to be a blood sacrifice. Abel brings the best of the ground. He's a tiller of the ground. He brings the best of his work. So we already see man trying to bring his best, his thoughts. God is not going to disregard Cain's um, offering and not tell him what to do. You understand what I'm saying? He's not going to say, hey, bring me an offering. Ah, nope, I just don't like yours. I like yours, Abel. No. There was instructions given. In fact, the the model was given in Genesis chapter 3 when the Lord made skins for Adam and Eve, which meant an animal had to lose his life so that they could be covered. That, again, is a type of Christ right there. The lamb slain, we assume it was a lamb. It was uh, an animal slain so that man could be covered from his shame and his nakedness. That would have been uh, communicated by Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel. And what does Cain say? Nope, I'm going to bring what I want. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to bring the best of my work. May not sound so bad on the on the the surface, but it's disobedience, isn't it? God didn't say, "Hey, give me your best." He said, "Give me what I want." This is what I require. And so Abel's offering, Abel's sacrifice, is accepted. Cain's is rejected. Well, you know what that leads to, right? Well, the Lord said to Cain, verse six: "Why art thou wroth? Why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou now be accepted?" If you do right, won't you be accepted? But if you don't, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, thou shalt rule over him. Be careful. There is sin waiting to have mastery over you. So then we know what happens. Verse 8, Cain kills his brother. Verse 9, the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? you getting a picture of who Cain is? I'm going to bring what I want, what I think is fine to the Lord. I'm going to be mad about it. And this guy, I'm going to kill him because I'm jealous or I'm angry at him. And when the Lord comes asking, what, am I my brother's keeper? I worry about myself. There's pride. There's self-centeredness there. Verse 10, the Lord says, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth to me from the ground. Now thou art cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. So his work now is cursed. But notice what he says. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. Literally, a wagging wanderer. Like you're going to bounce from place to place. You're not going to have a home. You're going to wander the earth. And that earth that you used to till now is going to be a curse to you. Again, let me stress what the curse on Cain was from the Lord. A fugitive and a vagabond, a wandering wanderer. Verse 13, And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. Doesn't sound really repentant. Sounds ticked off, doesn't he? This is too much. Look what you've done to me. Well, oh, now, now you've cursed me. Great. Now I'm going to die. Because he could have said, "Hey, I'm sorry. Let me bring a first fl- firstling of the flock." He could have done that when he's wrong the first time, but he doesn't, does he? Nope. Look, look what you've done to me, Lord. And so the Lord sets a mark on him in verse 15. Verse 16. Check it out now. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Verse 17, And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. Okay, now, how many of you, when you named your kids, gave thought to the meaning of it? We did, quite simply because there was somebody pregnant at the same time who lost a child That would have been the same age as Matthew. And that was the first child. And I thought, oh man, I I, I wanted a boy. And, you know, what are we going to name him? We need a strong name. And something like that happens. Then you get to the point, you don't care if it's a boy or a girl. You just want to hear a heartbeat when you go in for the next uh, um, ultrasound. So. Once we knew the sex of the baby, we, we started thinking actually of the meanings of names. And Matthew mean, Matthew means a gift from God. And that's, that's where our hearts were. This is a gift from God that He's healthy, He's alive, and we're going to be able to meet our baby boy. Uh, so we put thought into meetings. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we f- listen for that cute name, right? Like what's going to sound cute? What's going to be the cool nickname that goes with the name? Some, some parents put a lot of thought uh, into the name. Some don't. Biblical names are really um, a neat study. Now, you can kind of go way overboard and get really weird with it. But the the way that people would name their their kids, like uh, Mishael, who is like God. Or, um, it's all flying out of my head, so... they would include the name of God in their name. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, El uh, or Ah had the name of the Lord. It was usually talking about His attributes. So they would name their kids things that gave praise to the praise to God. In fact, we're going to come across that um, phrase actually in verse 26. Look in chapter 4 and verse 26. To Seth there was, given na- uh, there was also born a son. He called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. The correct would be to call themselves after the Lord. They began to take the Lord's name and, and put it in, in their names. If you look into the na- meaning of people's names, you start to get a picture for what's going on. Cain, or Cain, names his son Enoch. You know what Enoch means? It means "dedicated or uh, um, initiated. Like a brand new start. You know, Eve names Cain, Cain, and he says, I've gotten a man from the Lord. Wasn't there a promise given to her that her seed would crush the head of Satan? And so her firstborn, I've gotten a man. He's going to be the one. Very quickly shows he's probably not going to be. <laughs> and you know what Abel's name is? Abel. You know where You know what else that is translated as in the book of Ecclesiastes? Vanity. Nope, it's not going to be that. Poor Abel (laughs) had a bad name. But you you see how these circumstances could work themselves into into names? Cain names his first son Enoch. Like, we're going to start over. And notice what he does. Cain knew his wife, conceived bare Enoch, and he built a city. And called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Hmm. He built a city, literally a place that is guarded. Why would he do that? I ain't going to be a vagabond. I ain't going to be a fugitive. You're going to say, I'm going to wander, wander around this earth? No. In fact, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have my first son. I'm going to build a city. And I'm going to plant my family right here. Curse me if you want, God. It ain't going down like that. He builds a city, a place to stay when the curse upon him was, you're going to be a wandering wanderer, a fugitive, a vagabond. Then look in verse 18. So his son has a son. To Enoch was born Erad. Erad means fugitive. Erad begat Mehujael. Smitten by God, Mahujah begat Methusael, who is mighty, and Methusael begat Lamech, powerful. See some of the themes here. You get the trend for what's going on with this family. God smit me. I'm sure Cain told his son, who told that son. Guess what God did to your grandpa. He he was unfair to your great uncle or or your grandpa and he favored your great uncle or whatever you want to call it. He chose him just because and now he cursed Cain for no reason and you see this, this attitude begin to build in the line of Cain. And it doesn't take very long for things to go downhill, right? Verse 19, And Lamech took unto him two wives. There it is. Within just a few generations of the perfect family, you have polygamy. And it's a descendant of Cain that does it. He took unto him two wives. The, the name of one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Now also notice as we keep reading, in Ada bare Jabel. he was a father, as such as dwell in tents, and as such as have, as have cattle. So now we have things beginning to spread, and you have livestock... Um, um, Keepers, shepherds, and cattlemen. They're beginning to get a harness on the natural world around them. Verse 21, and his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all as such as handle the harp and the organ. So now we have the music side, right? These inventors, these innovators in music and, and musical instruments. And Zillah, she also bare Tubal Cain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. Now we have these builders, these metal workers. People that are skilled. They've got skills. They've got talents. And they're using them and they're building these uh, empires, if you will. And there's an arrogance. Look at verse 23. And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear ye my voice, ye wives of Lamech. Actually, it's Lamech. Hear ye my voice, or hearken to my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lemech shall be seventy and sevenfold. <laughs> There's arrogance. There's this prideful uh, uh, thing that's building in humanity and it is spreading. And they're, they're skilled and they're, they're working with their hands and they're, they're building these empires. Nothing is mentioned about the relationship with God. Because he's not a concern. You know what the concern is? Industry building self. Kind of like society today, right? Kind of like society's been for a long time. You fit God in if you can, but it's mostly about you and your empire and you building it and that arrogance that comes along with it. In fact. If you look through the line of Seth in chapter 5, nothing's mentioned special about what they do except that they're following God. <laughs> Anyways, this perpetuates itself. You see it starting right there this attitude, this building of society, this arrogance, this, this a- just, just uh, pride that's in society. That continues until chapter 6. It perpetuates until chapter 6. And what happens in chapter 6? Flood. Judgment. Judgment comes. Look in verse uh, 5. Chapter 6 and verse 5. And God saw, as he looks on the world, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart, I, I love that phrasing. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart, it's like he's consumed with all this, is what? Was only evil continually. That's, that's a bad state. And let, me, let me just say, I think we're there as humanity. The more things go on, I, it's like we're inventing evil things, right? Well, God looks down at the time before Noah, and this has so perpetuated itself that it's consumed humanity. And so you know what happens, right? The flood, boom, judgment. Noah and his family are saved. All the else, all, all the rest die. You think that would stamp out that kind of pride, that kind of um, anti-God, pro-self attitude, but it doesn't. Fast forward to chapter ten. So we go through the flood, all of that. Noah and his three sons come off the ark. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood. We need to back up in verse 9. So Noah has these three sons. One of them does something really bad. If you back up into chapter 9, after they get off the ark, look in verse twenty of chapter nine and Noah began to be a husband and his husbandman, he planted a vineyard, he drank of the wine, and he was drunk. He was uncovered with his tent, in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. Listen, there's been a lot of people try to say a lot of dirty, nasty things about that. We're speaking about a Middle Eastern oriental society where honor was high. You don't disrespect the head of the house. And so for him to go simply see Noah did something wrong, he sinned, okay, there's no question about that, but for him to see his father in that vulnerable position and then go out and tell his brothers, hey guys, look what dad's doing, that's dishonorable. That's dishonorable. You don't do that in this type of society. I think it's as simple as that. But you see that attitude already there. And so... um, He actually gets a curse placed on him. I don't got time to explain that. I want you to see what happens from the line of Ham. Chapter 10, verse 6. And the sons of Ham, Cush and Mizraim and Put and Canaan, the sons of Cush, uh, verse 8. I don't want to try to go pronounce all them. Verse 8. Cush begat Nimrod. Anybody heard of Nimrod before? My (laughs) dad... My dad used to call me that (laughs) way back when. I'm sure it's politically incorrect now, but I got called a lot of things. I got called bonehead all the time, and when I called somebody, another kid that at school, I had to get a talking to. (laughs) Evidently, you don't go around calling other kids that. It's okay for your dad to, but (laughs) it doesn't work the other way, right? Nimrod is actually a person, and he's in the Bible, and he's pretty significant. He's a grandson of Ham. His name means mighty. Uh, No, excuse me. His name means rebellion or valiant. Either one. Depends on how you take it. But this, this rebellious one or this valiant one. And it says, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. Literally, he began to be a tyrant. A tyrant. Uh, preemptive, uh, oppressive one. Verse nine. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, as it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. So does that mean he like got he would go get rabbits in the forest, and God was really impressed with his hunting skills? No. <laughs> it has a deeper meaning. First of all, that word before the Hebrew word is face. He was a hunter in the face of the Lord. And there's many times in the Old Testament. That it uses um, the term hunters for those who would be uh, oppressors over other people. So he's oppressing those around him, putting them down, lifting himself up. That's just right off the ark. After judgment was given and all the evils should have been stamped out, now we got this grandson of Ham who saw the world before, saw the judgment, and now has come off to this brand new start, who should have said, hey, we don't do this, guys. I remember what happened. And now we got his grandson going around, who's being a tyrant, pushing other people down. Not only that. Verse 10. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. That's not a different place. Same Hebrew word for Babel, Babylonia, Babylon. Same word. He starts this kingdom. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar where Babylon would come to rest, King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And where something else is going to be put there in just as we'll see in just a moment. Not only that, verse 11, out of that land went forth or he went forth from that land to Asher and built Nineveh. Another word for Asher, Assyria. This guy starts two of the kingdoms that oppress God's people. You know, Israel went into captivity to Assyria and to Babylon. This has roots way back, okay? Way back. So he starts his kingdom. And it manifests... It's, the, the, the best picture we can probably get of it is in the next chapter, the Tower of Babel. So let's, let's look at that for just a few minutes and we'll be done. Chapter 10 tells you how everything disperses. It's called the Table of Nations, if you've ever heard of that. It tells you where each of Noah's sons' family go. Some go to the coast, some go to the east. We know that Ham's family goes to like the land of Canaan and Shinar and all that in that general area. Chapter 11 backs up and tells you what happened before that. And the whole earth, verse 1, was of one language and one speech. They were unified. Unified. Instead of dispersing, they're gathering. It came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Who started the kingdom there? What kingdom's there? Babel, right? Babylon. And they dwelt there. Now notice what they say. Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly, which would have been technologically advanced. So they're going to burn them so they don't crumble as much. So they're stronger and they last longer. And they they had slime or pitch for mortar. Verse 4. And they said, go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach to heaven and let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. First of all, we're going to build a city. We're not dispersing anywhere, though the command was go, be fruitful and multiply the whole earth, right? Uh, Replenish the whole earth was the command from God. He said, no, we're going to stay right here. In fact, we're going to build a city to protect us and we're going to build a tower. A tower whose top will reach into heaven. They're not just trying to see how high they can get it. There's something else going on there. This is the religious side of things. We're going to build a tower whose top reaches into heaven. We're going to ascend into heaven. Does that sound like somebody else in the Bible? Satan. Satan. I will be like the most high. I will ascend into heaven. Right? So not only do they try to establish themselves in one place, they're making a religious monument, and they say, let us make us a name. This is going to be our place. We're living here. We're protecting ourselves. We're going to have our own monument. We're going to reach up into heaven, lest we be scattered again. Same old mentality, isn't it? Same old rebellious arrogance. This is human pride manifested again. We're going to build this. We're going to do this. Well, you know what happens, right? God comes down. In fact, yeah, He says, let us go down and see this tower. Evidently, it wasn't very high. if God is in heaven and He can't see it. Let's go down and see that. And He comes down and scatters them. You're going to do what I want you to do. and scatters them and then we get dispersion. We have that right there in the start of the book, in Genesis, to show us this is man trying to build himself, elevate himself. Cain does it through his line. It starts right up after the flood. And from Babel, it just continues. And you know what? That story is replayed over and over. Man builds himself up, God humbles. Man builds himself up, God humbles. The next time we come across is in the book of Daniel. When Nebuchadnezzar has this kingdom and he lifts himself up, right? Look at all that I have made. What did God do? You're going to become like a beast. And you're humbled. And then a new kingdom comes up. God brings them down. You see how it replays itself over and over? Man is always lifting himself up to be against God. Not just in society, but religiously as well. And that plays over and over and over throughout the Bible. At the time that John writes Revelation, that would be descriptive of Rome. Caesars were worshipped as God. They could declare themselves to be God. and So you had to pay tribute to Caesar. If you didn't, you lost your life. And that's why Nero hated the Christians so much. That's why he used them as human lamps on his streets, because they would not bow. That is man lifted up in pride, not only as a nation. Rome and all its great reach of the Roman Empire but also religiously. And what did God do to Rome? Squashed it and brought it down. All these times are ultimately uh, types of what is to come because man from the very get-go has sought to further himself and build himself not only um, as a society at the expense of everyone else, but religiously against God. And there's coming a day in Revelation When God says, enough, it's over. Babylon will fall. And it will fall fully and finally. See, this has been a long time coming. It's not one specific nation. Some people look at Revelation and they say, oh, that's when the Catholic Church is judged. It's more than that. It's bigger than that. That's when the city where the Antichrist is judged. is so much bigger than that. It's all of human pride is going to be judged. All of human religion and anti-God sentiment, all that, God is going to have His final say, and it's going to be brutal. So this will be a long time coming. All right, we're out of time. I think we'll go ahead and end it there, actually. I hope uh, hope that sets some seed in your mind and, and kind of gets a foundation laid for you as we're going to go on in, in the next couple chapters. This is this has been a long time coming. It's God's judgment against false religion. It's God's judgment against man's pride. And so what. beginning next week, we'll take a look and see what uh, the Bible has to say in Revelation. So for those tuning in, we'll see you Sunday at 10.